Hey, this is Lee. I really hope you've been enjoying the Business of Marketing podcast. It's from marketers and for marketers, and my intention is to bring you value, experiences, and insights that you can use. Also, if your company would like to have their own podcast, I would love to help. The team at Content Monster specializes in B2B podcasts. So if we can help, contact me at contentmonster.com. That's contentmonster, M-O-N-S-T-A.com. Enjoy the podcast. You're listening to the Business of Marketing Podcast where we have conversations with some of the most influential and thought-provoking minds in marketing, sales, and business. And here's your host, A. Lee Judge. Welcome again to the Business of Marketing. I'm A. Lee Judge. Marketers are forever on a quest to connect with their audience, whether it's through creating the right content to attract an audience or finding the right audience to send content to. To support that guest, we to, to support that quest, we look for software tools to provide the data for guidance. Our guest today not only has been providing tools for marketers, but also has been literally mapping out the path on a whiteboard for us. He is currently blazing the trail in audience research, but in the past has been called titles such as SEO legend, SEO guru, godfather of SEO. And even though he's moved on from that chapter, my favorite name that I've heard him call was the Wizard of Moz. Obviously, with those titles, it's a privilege to talk with and learn a few things from today's guest. Currently, he's the co-founder and CEO of audience research software startup SparkToro. So welcome to the podcast, Rand Fishkin. Hey, Rand. Thanks for having me, Lee. Great to be here. Good to talk to you. I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to, to chat with us for a while. So before we get too, too deep into, um, I'm really interested in your, your companies you founded in the marketing space. I have to tell you this, that I've got a whiteboard on my wall downstairs, and there is no doubt that you influenced the fact that it's there. <laughs> I mean, whiteboards, they're handy for so many things. Yeah. When I first began making videos, I think I came across yours, you know, working in marketing who hasn't seen your videos. And I was like, I love what this guy's doing. Uh, the, the challenge is lighting, lighting a whiteboard. That's a challenge. Oh, so. I know. I know. I, I wish I could show you the setup in here. So I've been trying to like, you know, I've got a shed out back of my house and that's that's where I work from. All the light comes from one side where all the windows are and the rest of the shed is, you know, like this, right? And yeah, yeah trying to light a whiteboard over on that side, it's <laughs> it's a lot of work, my friend. That's a challenge without getting the glare. Yeah, yeah. white spot or bright spot. Exactly. So... Around the whiteboard, you have educated a lot of marketers, myself included. So was being an educator ever a part of your business plan or did it just kind of end up being a driver? Yeah, I think that, I don't know. I always kind of had a childhood obsession with like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and, you know, how he'd teach, teach kids how to, how to be better human beings and, and learn about the world around them. And, you know, I sort of grew up with like, whatever. Jacques Cousteau under the sea, you know, and, and National Geographic before it was bought out and all that kind of stuff. And, and yeah, I, I love that stuff. It resonated with me. I think it, it taught me how to be who I am. And um, I, I never made education or, or teaching people like a formal part of what I wanted to do or my business plans or anything like that. But I think it, it came naturally. It came, it really came, you know, early in my career, it came from the frustration of like, why 
isn't Google telling people how to do this? They obviously have people who know, why won't they share this? And, you know, the reasons are obviously complicated, but um, the net result was an entire field of people trying to do work to promote their businesses, especially small and medium businesses who, who are, you know, in the American economy have this fundamental disadvantage against big corporations. And they're trying to do this stuff and Google is just so unhelpful. I mean, yeah, that, that was my maybe, big frustration. Maybe it's their yeah, yeah. yeah, maybe it's like, their advantage to keep it a mystery. Yeah, I mean, I think early on, right, they thought that they had to keep it secret so that Yahoo and MSN and all these, you know, Ask Jeeves, what their competitors wouldn't figure it out. And then they thought that uh, obfuscation was the best way to keep spammers out of their system. Mm -hmm. I don't think either of those actually were true. I think that they're just stories they told themselves and became culturally ingrained in Google's leadership and organization and then, you know, profligated to the rest of the company and that... that um, just meant that <laughs> who's here to help us if not us, right? Like Lee, you and yeah. I got to do it. <laughs> well, you've done a lot of help. And I, and I wonder, um, so typically I don't spend a lot of time on a guest backstory, but yours includes not only educating marketers, but also creating software that uh, any marketer with experience already knows about. Um, but, and I think that what you did, the path you took probably could not be replicated today because of the timing when you did it. So going yeah. from a blog to a consultant to a software business, take us back to like 2003 SEO Moz and tell us how you got to SparkToro. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the short version is exactly what you described, right? Essentially, I, you know, we were this failing web design company. My, my mom and I were working on, couldn't get clients. Even when we got clients, couldn't get them to pay. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and just, yeah, having a lot of, lot of challenges started this blog about SEO because uh, I had started to do SEO work for our web design clients after we couldn't afford to pay our SEO subcontractors. Mm, and okay. so I was like, so okay, I guess, yeah, you got you to pick up the slack because there's nobody else to do it. Um, and then had this frustration with, you know, with Google and Yahoo and MSN Search and all these people, right, that, that they weren't transparent about how their operations really worked. And so started SEO Moz as a blog to help explain help explain really just to share frustrations. Like if you look at those early posts, it's a lot of like, I think this thing works, but here's this person on this forum saying this other thing. And I tried this with my clients and this didn't work. So it's very amateur hour, but eventually, you know, got some, um, some serious audience participation and, you know, other folks contributing. I was obviously writing a ton. And so eventually I got better at it. Even though if you look at those early posts, I don't know if they're still up, but you know, it's it pretty bad. And then we started getting consulting inquiries, right? People said, oh, hey, those SEO Moz guys, like they seem to know their stuff. This Rand guy seems to know what he's talking about after a couple of years. So that became our business until 2007 when we had built some tools to help us automate some of our SEO work. And then we were like, hey, we have this big, you know, we have these two assets, right? Some tools that we find helpful and an audience of people who would probably also find them helpful. And when we launched that as a subscription business, which, you know, Early days, it was like, okay, PayPal us 39 bucks a month, you know, <laughs> it was completely informal. We'd never heard of software as a service. Like we, we did not know what we were doing in the least. Um, but that business rapidly, you know, overtook the consulting business in terms of revenue and customers and all that kind of stuff. So that, that's when we essentially started focusing exclusively on software. I think we divested our consulting business uh, in 2009 and 
you know, raised some venture capital, uh, started scaling that software business. And then, yeah, I mean, off to the races for, you know, a good five, six, maybe even seven years, you know, Moz was sort of the industry leader in SEO software. And then of course, um, <laughs> when I made the foolish decision to raise a bunch more money and try and go even broader, uh, with, you know, um, with that investment and, and try to hit all these other markets, um, SEM Rush, Ahrefs, you know, search metrics, all those kinds of folks took market share away from Moz. I think absolutely wisely and and you know deservedly so, because they did they believed in that one market. They believed it was going to be absolutely huge. You know, Moz's leadership and board of directors was sort of convinced um, that SEO was was going to remain a niche marketing practice and that we needed to hit other uh, mm-hmm. sectors of that field in order to grow. And obviously, we were wrong. Still, Oops. the brand is there. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, Moz, you know, Moz became a nice, a nice business for non-venture backed business, right? It was doing about fifty million dollars a year in revenue when I left, and um, you know, tens of thousands of customers. So, you know, not a not a bad business, certainly. Like, if you and I owned it, we'd be like, "Woohoo, this is a great business." But um, as That's a venture backed business, kind of a failure because. Of course, they have their requirements around, you know, return on investment, et cetera. Yeah. So once once you begin taking in money, the game changes, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so then how we get from here, from there to Spark Toro? <laughs> uh, you know, so I, I again, left. Is it necessity? Like, hey, what's the next thing? Or No. So I, you know, I had stepped down as CEO in 2014 um, during a bout with depression. And um, I think kind of spent spent the next um, almost four years uh, at Moz working as an, you know, sort of in, individual contributor. I was still on the board of directors, but um, began to have more and more disagreements with leadership and with the board and, you know, felt that we should focus on SEO. Took a long, painful uh, few years to, to um, get back to that that focus. And by that time, you know, the market had gotten a little bit away from Moz. Um, and then eventually just, you know, just got kind of um, burnt out, fed up with that, with what I felt were wrong decisions all across the board and uh, left the company in 2018, started 2018. And uh, I took about 10 hours, 12 hours off uh, and then started Spark Toro the next day. 12 hours. So, <laughs> yeah, everybody needs a vacation, Lee, you know? I thought you were going to say you work 10, 12 hours a day. You said you took 10, 12 hours off and then yeah. boom, right back in. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I would, you know, I wish I could tell you like, oh, I was so excited and passionate. I just wanted to do it. But also I needed, you know, healthcare. I needed, <laughs> um, uh, you know, a salary. Uh, Geraldine and I had bought a house and we had to pay our mortgage. And so we, yeah, it's um, a little, See, I, a little more complicated than just, uh, the you know, realness I, I to, is so yeah. appreciated because whether you're a nine to five in marketing, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're seeking VC capital money, sometimes I don't hear the realness of it. We hear the the sprinkle fairy tale versions of it, uh, and I'm sure a lot of people make a lots of lots of bold leaps because they didn't hear the real part. Yeah, you know that's that's absolutely right. And look, I mean that. I think that was a really, really scary time. Like I, I was deeply unhappy at Moz. I, I wanted to leave, but also, you know, just knew that um, financially it was going to be 
risky, right? Like, like if, you know, if, if I didn't get SparkToro off the ground right away, and then I, I had to raise money for Star- SparkToro, I, I could not fund it myself. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Geraldine and I had a little bit of savings, like enough that we could pay the mortgage for maybe a couple of years, three years or something. But, you know, then it was like, okay, what's going to happen after that? Um, and uh, yeah, so it was, it was back to work very rapidly. I'm, I'm glad I did that. I mean, Moz gave me a, quite a nice severance, like, you know, um, which, which it did for a lot of folks uh, there. And I'm, I'm proud of that. I'm, I'm glad that that company lived up to that ideal, but still, I mean, you know how it is, right? Like, yeah. Well, I want to talk about your, your expertise because that your expertise, your, your brand ran Friskin. We know who you are. That part, nobody can take from you. And the beginning of your story, <laughs> for those watching the video, you'll probably enjoy this part more than, than <laughs> watching it than hearing it. Uh, nobody can take it from you. Oh, God. Oh, God. But you can take it from yourself. That's what you got to watch out for. That This is very true. Um, because like, I noticed the first thing you said was you were just teach, giving out information because people wanted to figure this thing out. You wanted to figure it out. You didn't have all the answers but you kept giving and giving what you did know until people said, you know what? That's the guy who knows it. So let's pay them for it. So what what do you have to say about, I mean, this might might go into a content conversation, but if you give what you know, and and your focus is to give, not to receive, you give what you know, and you become, can you become the expert from that eventually if you're giving good information and then that actually drive your business? That's what, what happened with you, right? Yeah. And I, you know, I think that when we did it, you know, to your point earlier around, could you, could you build Moz in the same way today? And I I think the answer is probably no, but at the time we were doing that, very few people were uh, at all, right. It was the the field of SEO was filled with consultants and, you know, independent operators who basically felt that their knowledge was their leverage. And if they were to give it away freely, Mm you know, they would lose the the power and influence that they had. And why wouldn't people just go and do what they published online themselves and all, all that kind of stuff, right? And I, I think that the term content marketing didn't even exist yet. It was, you know, it was not viewed as an investment that you could make by giving away your knowledge. You were not potentially building an audience and building a reputation, but instead you were sacrificing, you know, your uh, valuable intellectual property. So yeah, for us, you know, we were, I don't know, early ish, definitely not the first pioneers in, in SEO to do this, right. Um, you know, Danny Sullivan and Barry Schwartz and, and Danny Sullivan, who now of course works for Google to keep things more secret, which is his own <laughs> frustration. I don't understand what happened to him. But, um, uh, you know, folks like Barry Schwartz, who obviously continue to do that. Uh, Bill Slosky, who, who just passed away, sadly. I mean, he was an early pioneer. He was on all those same forums with me in, in 2003, 4, 5, going to those events. You know, we, we met up many times. And yeah, he, SEO by the Sea was an, was an inspiration. It took off kind of around the similar time that SEO Moz did. Um, Aaron Wall, who unfortunately turned into a, a problematic person at best. Um, but, you know, Aaron with SEO book, he, you know, he was blazing that path uh, even before I was there. So, yeah, we, we all stood on each other's shoulders for sure. Well, listen to, listen to you talk about blazing paths from something that was new at the time. 
it makes me wonder if we're, we're in that same place with like with like Web three right now, where there are people who diff, what's different now is they're probably giving a lot of information for free because they've already seen what yeah. you did. And there's some, somebody right now. There's there's a <laughs> you taking notes now. There's a Rand Fishkin somewhere right now thinking, let me teach all I can, all I know on Web three, yeah. because nobody can say I'm wrong because nobody knows. Yeah. <laughs> so who's going to tell you you're wrong if nobody else knows? Um, anybody who knows anything right now about Web3 is ahead of 99% of people. <laughs> sure, you know? sure. I, I mean, I think that Web3 is an interesting one. The, the more I learn about it, the less um, I find practical applications and yeah. good use cases. And I, I think that there are people who are absolutely you know, benevolently teaching what they know about the, the, you know, theoretical ideas around what it could do, what it could accomplish, you know, how a, um, a blockchain supported system could, whatever, resolve identities and prove them in, even in privacy centric systems. And, you know, there's lots of interesting ideas, but uh, I'll be honest, Lee, like I've, I've really struggled to find anything where I say, oh yeah, that is, that is a problem that, only this solution could could get to, and I can see how it's going to be huge in the future, as opposed to, this feels like a creative solution in search of some problem. And maybe you'll eventually find that problem, and, yeah. and that'll be cool, but I'm not sure that it will. I think we're in a good place because, because we saw the internet come, and we saw people who were doubting that it was going to be a real thing. You know, at, at yeah. that time it was, okay, this internet thing's coming, it may be a real thing or it may just fade away. We don't know. We, we won't do anything with it. Yeah. Now when you and I see Web3, we're like, oh, it's going to be a thing. I don't know what it is yet. I, I may not participate yet. They may not have figured it out yet, but it'll be a thing whether <laughs> we participate now or not. So I, uh, funny enough, I have, a, I have a bet going with uh, the co-founder of, of HubSpot, Dharmesh Shah. I think it's a I think it's a five year bet. It might be a ten year bet. I can't remember what it is. But my my bet was that uh, in either five or ten years, uh, Web three would way. get yeah Web three would get like virtually no adoption from major businesses or organizations. It would have virtually no uh, significant commercial or NGO uh, applications. And Darmesh was like, absolutely not. You know, and look. That guy's a billionaire. He's obviously, you know, way smarter than me. Uh, built an incredible company. So, you know, maybe maybe smart outsiders would be like, I'm going to bet on Darmesh, not on Rand. But if you want my opinion, I just haven't been able to see my my way to like, how? What's this going to do? I don't, I don't I'm see with it. Yet. Both of you, because I don't see it. I absolutely don't see it. But I know it exists. <laughs> it's like God, <laughs> you know. I don't see it. I don't even understand all of it. You know. Um, it's almost like the song Give Me All Your Thoughts on God because I really want to meet him. So <laughs> give me all your thoughts on Web3 because I really want to see I mean, it. I'm, yeah, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm ready, but... <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I, don't, I, I feel like it's going to be something. It might even, in fact, I don't think it's going to even be called that. It'll be something else. There will be mm. utility. It won't be called Web3. You know, mm. it, it'll be something that is closely recognizable to what we think was happening now, but... Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, maybe if the maybe as the definition of it evolves, it'll yeah. feel more useful and pragmatic uh, than it does today. Is it feels a little nebulous and sort of? Uh, let me pitch some VCs on this. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Which, I mean, well, who, who hey, that has its purpose put, too. About, 
Yeah, so who am I? I bought Stark and Web, uh, what was it, Webcart, whatever it was. <laughs> oh, yeah. Whatever it was when you buy shopping online in, in 2000, whenever that was. Seems stupid then. But actually, it seemed yeah. smart then. Yeah, it seemed smart then. I believed in it then, but I was, what, 20 years ahead of Amazon there? Yeah. I mean, I was I was incredibly excited about Web 2, right? Web like, when Web 2 was. was coming out, I was like, oh man, this is the future. And and I think, obviously, it, it did become exactly the future, right? T- yeah. Today, you know, the large social networks and and YouTube and places where, you know, user-generated content sits on platforms and has algorithmic inputs and, mo- and moderation, that has absolutely become what the internet is. Um, and so I, I completely believe in that. I, I still think, you know, obviously it has its huge problems, but <laughs> has it become the, the internet? Yes. Uh, and I think that Web3, it's a little bit nebulous. Very clear. Well, let's bring it back home to today, to real stuff we can, we can touch, which is, mm. you mentioned earlier, content. Um, now this podcast was originally called The Business of Content, but then we realized mm. we need to broaden things a bit more, even though I love content. My agency is about content, but I love talking to marketers about all kinds of things. So um, recently, you were on a webinar. I think it might have been maybe one of the things that Spark Toro co-sponsored. It was called Why Your Content Strategy Isn't Working and How to Actually Break Through. Mm. Um, can you share maybe a couple of nuggets from that of maybe why our content strategies might not be working? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the big one, the central point that that I try to make on this is that um, many, many times marketers, content professionals, strategists target their content exclusively at uh, their customers and potential customers. And the problem is that... Um, those people may find that content valuable if if they stumble across it. But generally speaking, it's very, very difficult to break through the massive amount of, you know, sort of noise and, and signal of the internet to reach your audience directly. And therefore, the most successful content tends to be the ones in, in terms of both reach and penetration and in terms of, you know, success in driving action, it tends to be the content that appeals to both your target audience from a customer perspective and the sources of influence that your audience pays attention to. Meaning mm. the publications that they read, the email newsletters that they subscribe to, the blogs they read, the YouTube channels they subscribe to, the podcasts they listen to, the social accounts that they follow. Those sources of influence have very different desires and demands from content than what your customers do. Mm-hmm. And if you're just making content for your customers, you're going to miss out on the opportunity to reach your customers through their sources of influence. That, that I think, is the biggest mistake that most content, especially most content strategy makes. So you're saying that if I want to reach Rand then I need to also understand what Rand is reading and where he's going on the internet and also be there. So if I know you can't just, you know, I feel like you can't just put out, you know, let's say you and I are like, Hey, we've got an amazing new software product for interior designers, right? Like this, Oh, it's great new thing. And it's going to help them with, I I don't know much about interior design, but let's say color blocking and patterns and fabrics and like all this stuff is going to be so, so useful. They're going to love it. And the first few interior designers who show it to are like, this is incredible. 
So are we going to make content that's like, hey, interior designers, here's how software can help you automate your level, you know, your pattern making and 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 matching better. <laughs> like it, it, it reaches, right? It's great for your audience, but how is it going to reach them? You're going to produce that content and then what? Wait for people to like put in the right combination of Google keywords to try and find it. Interior designers already have their systems for how they do color designs and fabric. They're not searching for it anymore, right? They're, they're done. They know how to do it. You have to go and get whatever it is, you know, Architectural Digest or the Arcanet podcast or, you know, wh whoever is super influential that architects and interior designers pay attention to, you have to reach them through places where they pay attention. And frankly, it's, it's not just Google search. It's not just an email newsletter. It's not going to be just Twitter or Facebook or LinkedIn. It is certain communities, people, publications, events, all these different sources of influence that they pay attention to. That's what we're going to have to make. We have to make something that they want to talk about, right? You, you didn't invite me on this podcast because, just because I, I have a, you know, an interesting audience research tool for marketers. Lots of people have interesting audience research. tools. You invited me on here because you're like, Rand has interesting content that I, source of influence to other marketers, find valuable. I want to interview him about that. Right. This is this is the fundamental challenge, right? That I think that so many marketers just don't content, especially, just just doesn't hit. It's almost like having a someone to second that information. Like, okay, well, I second that information because it came on my show, or because the information that you're reading is from someone else. In other words, instead of directly to the consumer, it's to the middle third party. That's the middle trusted party. Yeah. That, yeah. Exactly. Right. Like. I don't trust random corporation I've never heard of. I trust source of influence that I know, like, trust, have paid attention to for years, has never steered me wrong. That, that's what I consume, right? So, you know, for me, for example, like I um, have developed a very frustrating relationship with the New York Times. So I used to think they were a very high quality publication. I think, I think they really were a very high quality publication. And the vast majority of stuff on there was really great. And I had a subscription for years. And over the last few years, I've been like, ooh, you know, the more I know about a topic, the less I'm, I'm like, oh man, the New York Times are really, they're, they're blowing this. And they've lost obviously a lot of their, you know, I think best writers and reporters to other publications like, like um, you know, whatever it is, uh, some to like the Washington Post or, or um, uh, the Economist or a bunch of, you know, sub stacks or those kinds of things, right? And so, you know, now I have my sources of influence that I trust on whatever, like, like big picture news stuff. So I actually stopped subscribing to the New York Times and I subscribe to the Washington Post. I, I, I like their stuff more. I think that they write better. I think that they do better stories, right? All this kind of stuff. So, you know, now if you want to reach me, at least on like big picture media stuff, that's probably the source. Uh, say, same story with, um, gosh, uh, I used to love food and wine. thought that was a great publication, would read it all the time. Like I, I'm kind of obsessed with cooking. Now I'm like, eh, I'm kind of more of a serious eats or, um, you know, for Japanese cooking, I really like just one cookbook for, um, a lot of, you know, uh, individual items. I read this, this, this taste magazine, like, you know, I have my sources. I learned to like them. I learned to trust them. You made me realize something. Um, recently I had a client who was doing some research 
Um, now, they're already a client, but they wanted to know a particular answer or confirm that they had maybe had hired the right company, my agency. Mm-hmm. And I'm on the phone with them. And they said, you know, I was reading an article in Forbes about podcasting, trying to find out, you know, how to determine the ROI of podcasting. And then I realized it was your article. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, now I know my ROI on <laughs> writing with Forbes. But yeah, ma'am. It's, it's what you just said, though. If if I had known earlier, and now that I know in this case I, I might do more, if I understand what you said right, this is somewhere where this marketer goes for information. And instead of me marketing to her, I marketed to her sphere of knowledge, where she goes to learn stuff. And she trusted it because she got it from where she's already at. I didn't have to bring her somewhere. She was already in her trusted zone of information. And then luckily for me, it came back home because it was written by us. But it it wasn't intentional. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, this is one of those things where, um, you know, if you were to look, for example, at um, early, the early years of Google, like especially those first 10 years, 97 to 2007, there was like a lot of, uh, a lot of people who started to trust Google that's, I think, how it became a leading search engine. And when they'd go looking for things on the internet, they would trust that the top results in Google were the best ones, the most authoritative, best ones. And that, you know, over time, that opinion changed. There's still some people who, who treat Google that way, absolutely. But there's a lot of people who are sort of like, ah, you know, Google, can you trust the first page? I don't know. That kind of thing. For certain things, I think yes. For other things, I think no. And so my my point is that that marketers, when we were doing, you know, even when I was doing SEO, it was kind of like a, hey, Google is telling all my potential customers and audiences what to pay attention to. Let me go be up there. And that's what SEO was, you know. And for, you know, for a lot of people um, who, who grew up in kind of the generation before ours, it was like radio, television, print, magazines, outdoor advertising, you know, all, all of that kind of whatever, sponsorship, buying a stadium in your name, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff that that sort of convinced all of us b- both to be aware of a brand and to start to know them, like them, trust them. So this brings me to SparkToro because I think I'm, I'm understanding better what SparkToro does based on what we just talked about, right? So let's dive a bit deeper into that and the practice of audience research. Um, I don't want our, our talk to sound like an ad for SparkToro, but I think the solution that you're providing is useful to marketers regardless of the tool. So yeah, yeah. yeah, your site says that your mission is to make it easy to discover the websites, blogs, podcasts, social accounts, and publications that, you're, that reach your audience, like you said earlier. So why is this type of discovery why is it useful and who's a tool targeted towards? Yeah, I mean, really it is useful if you are a marketer who kind of believes in reaching people through their sources of influence. If, if, if you're on board with that idea, then the next logical step is, well, I better figure out what my audience pays attention to, right? So I can go do good marketing of all kinds, whatever that you know could be advertising or a partnership or pitch them to be on their podcast or do PR, whatever it is, right, to the right places, the places that actually reach the audience that I want to reach. And what, what, what we find is SparkToro is not the only way to do audience research. Like my, my suggestion to almost everyone is, yes, you should do a few interviews. T- 
talk, talk to people who are your customers or, or right customers, right? Potential customers for the product you're making, your service you're offering. Maybe do a survey too, right? Try and get some data at scale. Try and validate the answer that you got from a few people among a larger group. I don't know, your email list or, or you know, you can run public surveys with uh, SurveyMonkey or, or Qualtrics or something like that. And then you probably want data at scale with, you know, I mean, ideal situation, right? Like if we could dream up the absolute best scenario in the world, it would be, first off, it would be that my contact lens would stop getting <laughs> stuff underneath it. Sorry about that. Uh, no problem. All right. So dream scenario. Well, okay, this is, if you wanted the absolute best data you possibly could get, it would be to go to your, uh, go to your audience, get their home addresses. <laughs> then at night, go to their house, break in, steal their phone, get the phone's unlock code, right? And then look at everything, right? Look at everything they uh, visit and all the things they're subscribed to and all their whatever email newsletters, all their um, YouTube channels that they subscribe to, all the podcasts that they have in their, you know, uh, whatever iTunes account, all, all every, everything they consume. But this is, of course, is incredibly illegal and super unethical, and nobody should do it, right? Unless you're so what's Xfinity the, or Google. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Google already knows, but they're not yeah, going to they tell do. you. So <laughs> Facebook probably knows, they're not going to tell you. Uh, so next best thing is, turns out a significant subset of humanity puts this online in their public social and web profiles for free already but you just have to go visit them. So, you know, when, when Casey and I were building SparkToro, we saw some very smart agencies, consultants, in-house marketing teams. And what they did was essentially, you know, they'd, they'd go like hire a couple of engineers to build a crawler to go crawl all the profiles of their customers online, right? They take their email list, upload it to Clearbit or Full Contact or People, one of these identity resolution services, get all the Twitter accounts, all their YouTube pages, you know, whatever they can match in there. And then go crawl all that stuff, download all the information, build a big spreadsheet of, you know, the data of like, okay, 16% of our audience subscribes to this YouTube channel. So if we sponsor that YouTube channel or run ads against it, that's going to be blah, blah, blah. Perfect, perfect audience for us to reach. But this was like hundreds of thousands of dollars to build this thing. Took six months, nine months, more, like just insane amounts of work to do this. And what we thought with SparkToro is, let's just do that for the whole internet. Like, why don't we, why don't we just crawl as many public profiles as we possibly can, you know, try to avoid the ones that we make sure we're, we're avoiding spam and bots and all that kind of stuff and collecting only the real people, real human beings online, and then aggregate up their data and make it searchable. So that instead of six months and 200 grand, it's, you know, whatever it is, 50 bucks a month and 30 seconds. <laughs> and, and that's what SparkToro does, right? So you search for whatever interior designers in Canada and say, okay, I, I, you know, my audience uses these words in their profile. Interior designer is located in Canada. Hit enter. All right, here's 1700 interior designers in Canada and their public profiles say they use these hashtags and have these demographics and uh, have, you know, visit these websites and uh, subscribe to these YouTube channels and, you know, uh, these podcasts, all that kind of stuff. And you can get it in in just a few seconds. Um, that that's SparkToro's goal. And I want to be clear, like like you said, 
I don't want to make this an ad for SparkToro. So if you want, we, we have like two competitors that I think can, well, maybe actually three that can offer reasonably similar things. If you've got a big budget, mm-hmm. Brandwatch has a service like this. Um, it's expensive. Absolutely. But like, you know, they have a whole enterprise sales team and process. And I love, I think it's really amazing. Like it can do potentially even more than SparkToro can do on this front. Um, just, just pricey. Uh, if uh, you're looking for sort of more similar to SparkToro, there's two other products. One is called Helixa.ai and another one is called um, Audience with an S instead of a C. Uh, and those two products are well liked by lots of folks too. So SparkToro is not the only thing that does this. Uh, obviously, you know, uh, you can, you can try out, I think, I think Helixa and SparkToro. Well, SparkToro obviously has a free version that you can play with, but uh, I think Helixa does as well. Okay. There's a lot of good resources right there. If if marketers want to do their research, um, appreciate that. So let's say I'm using SparkToro and I have this information. I have the hashtags my audience is using. I have the places they go. Um, I know what they read or what they watch or whatever, or where they cruise internet, what their sites are. What is my next actionable item? Do I look, do I use this for, for placing content or for advertising? What's the best way to do that? This, in my opinion, is down to every different business and every different marketer doing it a different way. Right. So like, for example, if you are the kind of person who's whatever, good on camera and you know, you, you give good interviews. Yeah, you might go and try and like actually pitch the YouTube channels and podcasts and that kind of stuff to to feature you as a guest. And you might also be someone who's like, get in front of a camera. Hell no, I never want to do that. Okay, maybe you're a good writer and you can pitch them, you know, uh, a guest editorial. Maybe uh, you work on a piece, maybe you're like a great stats person and you work on a piece of co-branded statistical analysis with their data and your data. Maybe you are... Um, I, I don't know, you know, offering some incredibly creative, you know, craft beer brewery experience. And you're like, hey, do you want to do an event at our brewery? And like all, all that we'd ask is that you, you know, uh, show up and, and you know, co-brand the event with us and you sort of promote our brewery. Great. The, the thing to do is up to is really about what are you good at? What do you have the people and skills and resources to do? And what's going to resonate with that source of influence, that publication, person, event, whatever. I don't, I don't want to try and be, you know, presumptive and say, oh, well, everyone should do it this way. Or you should just go to your Facebook ads and your Google ads and just plug in the YouTube channels and the, the you know, interests and the, you know, words and phrases people use in their social posts and blah, 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 and just run ads to them. Some people do that and it works fine for them. Great. Like there's people who the only thing they use SparkToro for is better Google and Facebook and YouTube ad targeting. Fine. And Twitter and LinkedIn. Fine. Like that, if that's you, go for it. But hey, for me, like what I use it for is let me go find these sources and then let me figure out what I could do with them that's going to provide value to them and their audience and also get them to talk about me. So from a practical standpoint for my listeners, if I find out that all of my target audience, say they're marketing directors, if they're all fans of Rand Fishkin, I should probably have, <laughs> have him on my, this on my podcast, podcast. This podcast was a really good idea, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> if that's the case, right? Well, see, I use Spark Toro and it told me that. So. <laughs> oh, so man, meta. you're a genius. <laughs> <laughs> so meta. 
so this is a tool, and as a marketer, these are our shiny new objects when we have a new tool to learn yeah. something yeah, new. Totally. So let's zoom out a bit and talk about measurement um, mm. as a whole, because typically when I talk about form over function or form over function, I'm talking about a product, but I've seen a lot of successful measurement tools that in their form provided information, lots of information, lots of data, but didn't actually serve the function of business. Mm. So do you have any insight on how we as marketers can avoid maybe measuring or buying the wrong things to measure the wrong things? Yeah, I think, I mean, there is an obsession in marketing culture um, and I think it's mostly driven actually by leadership more so than individual marketers, but a ton of marketers, you know, if you're in an agency or you're a consultant, like your clients expect that everything digital marketing can be measured and, and kind of perfectly measured, right? They, whatever, 10 years ago, they saw a report for, you know, showing them every single Google search keyword that sent them a converting visit. And now like that's their gold standard for what they expect and trying to explain that hey, that kind of data is just not available, not even from Google anymore, for, for SEO at least, and uh, not from Facebook anymore. And you can't get it for virtually any organic investment you're going to make. You know, PR, social media marketing, content marketing, email marketing. Like, I'm sorry, we are not going to be able to tie every conversion or even 50% of conversions to all the things that the person experienced. Like, I guarantee you, there's no freaking way on earth. Let's say, let's say 10 people who are listening to you and I right now go to SparkToro's website, right? Maybe they go to Google and they search for SparkToro or they just type in sparktoro.com, whatever. And then they go and sign up. How in the world would Casey and Amanda and I know that it's from this podcast? Yeah. Does that mean doing this podcast is useless? Frustratingly, there are a lot of leadership teams and clients who will not invest in, you know, efforts like that because they can't provably measure it. And it frustrates the heck out of me. Like, I just, I don't know, man. It's tough for us when we, because we produce podcasts as a content piece. We produce in Content Monster. And that question inevitably comes up during our, you know, our pitch to somebody. And we'd rather be just straight up honest and tell say exactly what you just said. Like, it's difficult to measure. You won't get everything. You just have to know that it's worth doing. If that works, great. If it doesn't, it would have been a headache of a client in the first place. Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> right. You, you need to get the people who essentially believe in serendipitous, hard-to-measure marketing channels and understand that because they're serendipitous, because they're hard to measure, because, you know, journey, marketing journey, customer journey is long, very few of their competitors will invest in them and that makes them easier to invest in and higher ROI when you do, right? Because it's less competition. Mm. The other thing I think that is, is very compelling uh, that can be done if, if you have patience is you can measure lift. Market by market, you can measure lift. So for example, hey, we're going to do a big podcast marketing effort with podcasts based in the US, but not in Canada, not in the UK. And then we're going to look and we're going to see, hey, it looks like our U.S. lift in traffic, search demand, whatever it is, is growing outsized to our other, you know, similar country. You can do this region by region. You could, you know, you could say like, hey, I want to do a big event marketing series. I'm going to run it in Kansas and Oklahoma. All right. What happened in Iowa? What happened in Ohio? Hmm. 
hmm, we did not see the lift. Okay, now we know. If we invest in an event series like da-da-da-da-da, it looks like we got about a 30% lift in brand awareness and a 20% lift in traffic. And over the course of the next six months, this much in sales lift. This is how, you know, whatever, Pepsi-Cola in 1970 measured billboard campaigns, right? They're like, okay, we're going to put up billboards in Toledo and we're not going to put them up in Akron. And then they'd be like, hmm, look at that. Toledo sales lifted by 12%. Okay, now we know what a billboard campaign is worth to us. That's exactly how I try to explain, especially podcasts. They're probably the hardest ones for us to, to, to measure, but it's the lift. It's, it's not the exact number. It's how the numbers changed. Like if you went from, we don't know if, we don't know if you went from one to 100 or 100 to 1,000, or let's say one to 100 or 100 to 200. We just know it's 100% change. We don't know the exact number, right? Do we go from one to 100? Do we go from 100 to 200? We don't know which number that was, but the lift was there. You got more yeah. blog, you know, more views to your website or more blog articles that's tied to that podcast. You have more listeners. We don't know exactly how many, but you have more than you had last week, and it's always going up. So it's like, yeah. okay, well, if it's always going up, keep doing it. But to say exactly, that's a tougher one. Yeah. Yeah. And to tie it to conversions is, you know, it's sort of a pre-privacy era pipe dream. Like you just can't do yeah. it anymore. Yeah, we've seen big jump drops, rather. I'd like to say jump. You know, when Apple made its changes, and you know right. lots of your browsers are from iPhones, that changes things. And it's only going to be more and more first party going forward. So uh, yeah. marketers, get ready to change all yeah, your yeah. reports. Yeah, get ready. This is the future <laughs> of marketing measurement is 1970s style marketing measurement. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to have to dig up what I learned back when I was doing radio. Because yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, radio is a great example of this because, right, every local radio station only reaches a certain geographic area. Mm -hmm. And so you really could, you know, it wasn't like every radio in every car recorded what station it was listening to and then sent that data back. And, you know, you could tie it to, I don't know, some identifying. You never had that. And when yet... I left, when I left radio, they were just launching the, they called them PPMs. They meant portable people, portable people meters. It looked okay. like a pager, and you would wear this pager all the time, and what? Nielsen was listening. So it oh listened to where you were. The thing about it was, it, it, it would account, it would compare what you said you listened to versus what you thought you listened to, or what you mm. actually listened to. Because if you say, hey, I only listen to Q100, that's what you, on, on your survey, that's what you say. I'm a Q100 listener, that's what I listen to. But what you don't realize is, you're in your car listening to Q100, then you get out and go to the grocery store. It's a different station. You go to a carnival. It's a different station. And so mm. you're exposed to multiple places and you didn't even realize it. And the PPMs totally. are trying to measure that. But even then, it was rough. It was rough around the edges. You know, um, it was, oh it was dynamic compared to, you know, billboards. It was like cutting edge science. I don't know what they do now. Probably some of the same. Yeah. They probably listen to your cell phone now. I don't know. But, Fascinating. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, huh. I think we're heading backwards to where we just got to know we're doing the right thing. We're not, you know, to kind of make yep. that. So one last thing, Rand, um, and this is a social audience and an SEO question, and it might hit home with you a little bit. Um, I tried Googling Rand Fishkin, and it was very difficult to find anything that did not connect you with SEO. Oof. <laughs> now that's awesome because you have so many results, but how does that affect your, your pivot as a leader in audience research? Yeah. No, no, it's really, I think it's really tough. Right. And, um, 
you know, four, four years at SparkToro versus 17 at Moz, you know, I think this is one of the weaknesses of Google is that it um, does not, does not always reflect reality, right? And, and has old data, has, you know, um, old ways of thinking. I think, if I'm not mistaken, the, the one box result for my name in Google comes from a 2009 Google Books listing, you know, and I talked to a bunch of people about knowledge panels and all that kind of stuff. And they're like, yeah, you'll never get it out of there. Like Google yeah, likes that, that old thing. I actually reduced the date to the past year. Right. Yeah. So I want, because I always want to know, I mean, we know the things that people like you are known for people who have a, a, a name in their industry. We know the big yeah. thing, but I don't want to talk about all the big, I want to talk about you and what's, you know, what's happening today. And yeah. so, yeah. So I'm, even though I don't, I, I claim I don't do a lot of research Guy Kawasaki called me out on that and said, I do, do a lot of research, but mm. um, <laughs> I did that. I put in your name, I put in this year just to narrow it down because I knew that Moz wasn't the thing right now. And yeah. you're right. Even on the first page, the whole first page were new articles today, people quoting you from 2012, 2015. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, which is fine, right? Like, I don't, I don't want to stop them. I mean, I'm not... I'm not trying to be like, hey, that never happened. Stop it. It's fine. You know, go, go for it. I, I've noticed like, a, especially in the last six months, for some reason, I think YouTube's recommendation algorithm started recommending a bunch of my old Moz Whiteboard Friday videos. Hmm. And so I've gotten a bunch of people reaching out being like, wow, you know, this, check out this old timer. <laughs> His videos are like five years old, but they're still really good. And I had this like, hmm. Surely there must be someone better these days to pay attention to an SEO who's giving you like more modern advice, right? In all honesty, you did it well. You you did yeah. it very clear. You did it very well. You explained it. And I've watched a lot of those videos thinking, wow, I just watched a whiteboard for 45 minutes. How did that happen? But it was worth it. <laughs> you, So thank you for that. Well, I, I appreciate it. I, I really do. And yeah, hopefully, you know, hopefully episodes like this one eventually start to take over some of those results and, and folks, um, come around, but you know, it's not the end of the world. Plenty of people, if, if you, you know, thankfully I think the, the top result in Google for my name in the organic listings is thank God spark Toro. So Good. folks can figure it out from there. <laughs> so we're getting there. <laughs> yeah. We're getting there. Well, Rand, I am tremendously grateful for your time and insights today. Um, would you like to share any final words about what's on top of your mind or about spark Toro? Ooh, gosh. Um, I would just say, you know, hey, if, if folks want to give it a spin, it's, uh, yeah, it's free to try. And, and of course, we, you know, I love helping people use it better, figure it out more. So if, if you're kind of like, oh, yeah, I really do want to find, you know, more information about this particular audience, but I can't seem to describe it right in SparkToro, drop me a line. I'm happy to uh, help you formulate the right queries. Um, I'm just Rand at SparkToro.com. And um, yeah, if you... Uh, want to chat about anything else, entrepreneurial stuff or venture stuff or whatever, I'm uh, at Randfish on Twitter. Sounds great, man. Well, awesome. Thank you again, Rand. Stay well. And thanks to the listeners. If you're listening to the podcast, I also want to see Rand and I. Video of the podcast will be uh, on contentmonster.com with the rest of the podcast. So thanks again for listening and thanks, Rand, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Lee. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Business of Marketing podcast, a show brought to you by ContentMonster.com, the producer of B2B digital marketing content. Show notes can be found on ContentMonster.com 
as well as aleejudge.com. To continue the conversation, be sure to follow the podcast on your favorite podcast platform.